Alderman Brendan Riley endorses Paul Vallis for mayor, pledging significant financial support. And Chicago-based Potbelly closed on a new $25 million loan, ending a relationship with J.P. Morgan Chase. I'll talk with Crane's reporter, Ali Marathi all about it. So what we know is that, you know, restaurants and companies in the food industry have been rotating through partnerships since COVID, and that traces to suppliers, to lenders, etc. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, February 15th. Your business isn't an afterthought, so why would you settle for a bank that treats you like one? At Wintrust, small business clients are matched with a personal relationship manager who offers customized solutions and prioritizes their needs. And that personal touch works. Last year, Wintrust lent the most to Illinois small businesses through SBA loans, making them the number one SBA lender in the state. Start expecting more from your bank. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash SBA lending. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Chicago-based Potbelly closed on a new $25 million loan, ending a relationship with J.P. Morgan Chase that had been strained since the early days of the pandemic. I'm joined by Cranes reporter Ali Marathi to talk all about it. Welcome back, Ali. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So talk to me about this new loan because it replaces the line of credit that Potbelly had with J.P. Morgan. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. So it is a five-year loan. It matures in February 2028. Uh, the interest rate's about 14%, and it is through a, a Montreal-based uh, lender called Sagard. And yeah, you know, it, it replaces this loan they had through J.P. Morgan Chase and did not hear back from Potbelly on this. Chase declined to comment. So we don't know exactly what went on or why they decided to switch, but we do know the history here. And Potbelly has had somewhat of a strained relationship with JP Morgan basically since, you know, the early days of the pandemic, as you said. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna say we should probably unpack all of that. We've talked about it here on the podcast, but it's been a minute. A lot of things have happened since. I mean, it's kind of a significant deal that that Potbelly and JP Morgan are are splitting up, really. Right. So if we go back, you know, about three years, um, Potbelly's finances have been under pretty heavy scrutiny. And part of it traces back to those early days of the pandemic when it was applying for a PPP loan, right? So it received a $10 million paycheck protection program through Chase initially, but it ended up returning the money after privately held restaurants kind of raised a stink over the fact that publicly traded restaurants which, you know, presumably have more access to capital, were receiving such funding. If you recall, Shake Shack came under similar scrutiny. We saw a bunch of other companies that sort of returned, you know, the PPP loans that they received. So at the time, Potbelly was in the early stages of a turnaround, and we can talk about that later too, the multiple turnarounds Potbelly has launched in the past few years. But back then, you know, they were in the early stages of one. It started drawing on basically this entire $40 million line of credit it had with J.P. Morgan. And within weeks, the bank required Potbelly to start repaying chunks of the loan. So you had the paycheck protection drama. Eventually, that cooled off a little bit. Potbelly applied for another PPP loan through a different bank, got the money, and this, this takes us up to about a year ago, okay? They're warning investors, hey, we might have to repay this $10 million loan. It might not get forgiven, you know, and this could have big implications for us because 
Potbelly stock, it's it's up a little bit from where it was, but during you know the pandemic, it dropped down to just a couple of dollars. It was not doing well at all. So last fall, we found out that its $10 million paycheck protection loan would be forgiven. So it did end up taking that money and using it. So throughout all of this, Chase is continuing to reduce its exposure to Potbelly, try to get them to pay that money back, et cetera. So what we know is that you know restaurants and companies in the food industry have been rotating through partnerships since COVID. And that traces to suppliers, to lenders, et cetera. And it's partially because it was just a really unprecedented event. You know, it hit the restaurant industry very hard. And a lot of these companies are kind of thinking in restaurants, they're thinking, okay, you know, who served me well during the pandemic? Who had my back during that really hard time? And, you know, if their company, their supplier, et cetera, didn't have their back, they're maybe looking elsewhere to see if someone else can you know, start working with them. So that's one thing that's happening. A lot of shakeups there. Also, when you dig through the filings, you can see that, you know, JP Morgan, that the loan with them was set to expire anyway. So it's possible JP Morgan was just looking to curtail its, its exposure in the restaurant world, or perhaps the rates Potbelly were offered, you know, maybe weren't up to what they wanted to pay. So there's a lot of things that could be going on in the background here, but we do know just that Potbelly has been on a bit of a rocky standing financially for the past couple of years. You mentioned Shake Shack, and I was remembering back that didn't even they at one point kind of join the backlash against Potbelly? I think you're right because I don't exactly remember, but I think that they gave theirs back first. Right. And then they're like, we can do it. How about you? <laughs> right. I think that's how that went. Yeah. I mean, I think public outcry is more than fair. There was a lot of uh, a lot of consternation around who took that PPP money and who did not. And, you know, it's still interesting to hear like the PPP drama still comes up in conversations I have with small independent restaurants. Some of them, for example, couldn't get a PPP loan because maybe they had like, you know, furloughed all of their people and they weren't paying themselves, you know, during that time. So really, they didn't have payroll at that moment. So there were a lot of things happening like that, putting these restaurants in really dire straits as they were completely shut down. So you can see, you know, why that outcry would be justified a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about those those turnarounds you mentioned. So it seemed like Potbelly has been kind of on this reinvention spree a little bit. Yeah. So if you think about Potbelly's history, you know, it started out of some antique shop in Lincoln Park, you know, back in the day. And um, just the toasted sandwiches were the thing there, you know, and it's seen all these iterations. If you remember the guitar player that used to be strumming in the corner, you know, the line that you would wait in and you would kind of order your sandwich as you went down the line. So, you know, throughout the past few years, and this dates to pre-pandemic, we've seen Potbelly try to reinvent that, right? So maybe we don't have people go through the line with their sandwich. Maybe that'll get people through the line faster. Let's do away with the guitar player. That's an extra expense we don't need, that sort of thing. So a lot of those efforts largely failed. They brought in a new CEO within the past couple of years. His name's Bob Wright, and he has had experience in other fast food chains. You know, Wendy's is one of them. And what he announced last year was that, you know, Potbelly is going to grow and we are going to do that via franchising. This is not unusual to see, especially right now. And part of the reason is because when you have a franchisee, they shoulder a lot of the costs that we're seeing go up right now. You know, I know inflation has cooled a little bit in the past couple of months, but, you know, the cost of labor is still up. Cost of food is still up a little bit, you know, and those are costs that franchisees often bear. 
the cost of construction sometimes, right? So Potbelly sort of leaned into that and they said that last year, you know, we had this plan to transfer 100 of Potbelly's almost 450 shops to franchisees and grow the chain to 2,000 locations in the next decade. Ultimately, he wants 85% of the shops to be franchised. So I just dug through the filings and, you know, they last reported earnings in November. We have another one coming up here in early March. But at that time, they gave an update that they had signed um, a couple development agreements with franchisees and they were going to bring those deals that they've signed so far. will bring 19 new shops to Tampa, Florida and the central Illinois markets. And then they also signed another deal for six shops in Orlando. So we're seeing, you know, some slow but steady improvement on that front. I do wonder about that franchise strategy because I have to assume potential franchisees would be facing the same sort of headwinds that the corporate entity would be. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a bit of a risk. And the other thing I've talked to experts about, because we've seen a lot of other companies do this too, you know, I've had conversations with companies ranging from like A&W, you know, that are really doubling down on the franchisee world right now. And first of all, it's hard to find a good franchisee, especially in this environment, because they have to have the capital. You know, oftentimes these franchisees are required by the company to invest a certain amount of money, you know, into it. I recently interviewed a Culver's franchisee, and he told me that he had to have $600,000 up front you know, and, and it's hard to get that if you don't have a restaurant already, if you're not already established, right? So there's that going, you know, it's finding these folks that are interested, that are willing to take the risk right now. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, we don't know what the future is going to look like. And obviously for a company, it's a good way to grow because you can take basically some of the expenses that are required to grow off of your balance sheet. Um, but yeah, I mean, that burden just gets put on the franchisee. Well, I'm sure lots more to talk about as we go down that road. But while I have you here, I would love to talk about some other reporting you've done recently about a push from the craft beer industry to legally ship beer in the state. Tell me about this. So um, it's the Illinois Craft Brewers Guild, which is sort of the trade association representing the state's almost 300 craft breweries. And as we've talked about before, you know, the craft beer industry has had a pretty rough pandemic uh, three years now. So what they did was they filed a couple of bills with the state legislature that would basically allow craft breweries to ship beer directly to consumers. This is a very big deal for them because they can't do that now legally. You know, they're dealing with like a lot of the parts of the country are kind of wonky alcohol laws that date back to, you know, just post prohibition. So it's kind of unpacking that, figuring out what's going to work for these craft breweries and Wine, for example, can ship, you know, if you're a winery, you can ship directly to a consumer, um, but craft breweries can't. So they think that if they get this bill through the legislature, then, you know, it'll put them on kind of level playing field with every other industry that can ship directly to consumers. What is the timeline of that potential change? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm not exactly sure. I think we should point out that this is the second time in as many years that the Craft Brewers Guild has introduced a bill trying to get this shipment capability. I talked to the executive director of the guild, and he told me that he thinks this one's more likely to pass because they put a cap on it. So basically, consumers will not be able to order more than 12 cases, and a case includes 24 cans or bottles of beer a year. So the previous iteration of the bill did not have that cap on it. 
So this is something that they're hoping, you know, the legislature is in session right now. They're hoping that they do see some progress on it. You know, it's something I'm going to continue to track and we'll kind of see what happens here. Definitely lots of follow-up conversations here for sure. All right. Well, thanks so much, Allie. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Coming up, a family foundation donates $50 million to Purdue's business school. We'll talk about that and more right after this. This coming February, Crane's Chicago Business relaunches its executive education program in leadership development, custom designed to hone the leadership skills of executives across the Chicagoland area. We're pleased to bring you new programming from Crane's Leadership Academy designed and taught by renowned faculty from Chicago Booth School of Business. The program will benefit mid- and senior-level executives from the Chicagoland area across various sectors and industries who seek to heighten their leadership skills for success during these uncertain times. Sessions will be held at the Gleacher Center in downtown Chicago from February 24th through March 24th, 2023, every Friday from 9 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. A certificate of completion from Chicago Booth and Cranes will be provided. For questions about the program, visit cranesacademy.com or email cranesacademy at crane.com. This is the Cranes Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Downtown Alderman Brendan Riley of the 42nd Ward, who campaigned for Mayor Lori Lightfoot in 2019, has endorsed Paul Vallis for mayor and is pledging significant financial support. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported, citing data from the Illinois Board of Elections, that Riley spent nearly $30,000 toward Lightfoot's election effort in 2019 through in-kind contributions from his Citizens for Alderman Riley campaign committee. That money was spent on the Lightfoot campaign's election staff, phone banking, and mailings. Riley told Cranes in a message, quote, The Vallis campaign can count on significant in-kind support from our political operation and extensive volunteer network downtown. Lawrence noted in reporting that Riley is running unopposed for re-election and has nearly $800,000 in his campaign account. His support and familiarity with his ward could help Vallis drive turnout in the vote-rich 42nd Ward, where he's expected to do well. Lawrence also reported that early in Lightfoot's first term, Riley was a reliable ally, but broke from the mayor on several high-profile issues, including her attempts to curb aldermanic prerogative over local ward issues like sign and cafe patio permits, the Chicago Casino, and the upcoming NASCAR Street Race Series. The endorsement follows backing for Vallis in recent weeks from Alderman Tom Tunney of the 44th Ward and Alderman Brian Hopkins of the 2nd Ward. Bloomberg reported that U.S. consumer prices rose briskly at the start of the year, a sign of persistent inflationary pressures that could push the Federal Reserve to raise interest rates even higher than previously expected. According to data out Tuesday from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the overall consumer price index climbed 0.5 percent in January, the most in three months, and was bolstered by energy and shelter costs. The measure was up 6.4 percent from a year earlier. In Chicago, the January inflation rate was 5.4 percent, a small decrease from its 5.5 percent rate in December. According to BLS data, it was the seventh month in a row that the area rate fell following a peak of 8.9 percent in June of last year. Of the 12 cities for which the BLS provided January data, Chicago ranked ninth, just ahead of urban Hawaii at 5.2 percent, 
Minneapolis-St. Paul at 5.1 percent, and the Washington, D.C., Arlington, Virginia area at 4.4 percent. Nationwide, excluding food and energy, the so-called core CPI advanced 0.4 percent last month and was up 5.6 percent from a year earlier. Bloomberg noted in reporting that economists see the gauge as a better indicator of underlying inflation than the headline measure. Bloomberg also reported that the figures, when paired with January's jobs report and signs of enduring consumer resilience, underscore the durability of the economy and price pressures, despite aggressive Fed policy. The numbers support officials' recent assertions that they need to hike rates further and keep them elevated for some time, and possibly to a higher peak level than previously expected. The details of the report showed that shelter was by far the largest contributor to the monthly advance, accounting for almost half of the rise. Used car prices, a key driver of disinflation in recent months, fell for a seventh month. Meanwhile, energy prices rose for the first time in three months. Shelter costs, which are the biggest services component and make up about a third of the overall CPI index, rose 0.7 percent last month. Owners' equivalent rent and rent of primary residence increased by the same amount, while hotel stays also climbed. A new study released on Sunday by WFH Research, a group of economists who have conducted regular surveys on changing work arrangements since early in the COVID-19 pandemic, looked at the impact of remote work on Chicago's downtown business district and put a dollar figure on that economic impact. And what they found is that compared to 2019, the average Chicago office worker per year is spending $2,387 less on meals, shopping, and entertainment near their workplace, according to the research. That drop-off is smaller than many other U.S. cities, including New York City, which named a figure around $4,700, Los Angeles, which came in at $4,200, Washington, D.C., right around $4,000, and Atlanta at just under $4,000. Chicago workers are spending 26.8 fewer days in the office now than in 2019, according to the study, and that ranks ninth among the cities studied, with Washington, D.C. seeing the largest increase of remote work at 37 percent. Overall, office occupancy has shown signs of inching up across the country. Last month, the national average for days spent working remotely dropped to 27 percent. That number was in the mid-30s at the same time last year. Chicago's retail vacancy rate rose again last year to 28.3 percent from 27.4 percent at the end of 2021. That according to a report from Stone Real Estate, a Chicago retail brokerage. And that's nearly double what it was in 2019. The Dean and Barbara White Family Foundation donated $50 million to the Daniels School of Business at Purdue University, making it the largest single gift in the business school's history. Crane's Brandon Dupre reported that the donation will establish the Bruce White Undergraduate Institute. Bruce White, founder and chairman of White Lodging and a former member of the Purdue Board of Trustees, died on January 19th. Dupre noted that the school said the institute will serve as a flagship element of the Daniels School of Business. And he also reported that this marks the latest donation by the family over the last three decades, which includes a $30 million gift to renovate the Union Club Hotel in 2018. An effort to relaunch the business school has raised more than $127 million from donors, and the school's board of trustees has committed an initial investment of $300 million to establish Purdue's business program as the standard for what it described as, quote, an affordable, technology-focused, pro-business business education. 
That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.